Hi, and welcome to The Literary Sipper. I'm Amber Vitti Hill, your host. And this week, we are going to talk about three books that I'm thankful for at the moment. I feel like this podcast episode is a little late as last week was Thanksgiving, but because last week was Thanksgiving, I was um, busy doing Thanksgiving type things that moms do. Uh, Some dads do too. I'm not meaning to say they don't, but uh, making pies, you know, last minute exams for kids, their soccer parties and birthday parties and turkey dinner and planning the weekend and on and on and so forth, plus all the regular things that trying to get done. So I did not have time to record this episode, um, but I'm doing it now. And, you know, it's still November. And in this holiday season coming up, I guess it is important to be thankful for the things you love most. And one of the things I love most um, is books. (laughs) I love them so much. And I love to read, and it makes me happy, and bookstores make me happy, and used bookstores make me happy, and borrowing books from friends, and the library, and anywhere there are books, and anywhere I can talk about books, and be talking about books, um, makes me happy. So today, I'm going to talk about the three that I'm very thankful for at the minute, knowing that this could change next week, this could change tomorrow, um, and that's all good. It's all fine. You meet the books where you are. And that's why rereading books is so fun and is one of my goals for the new year. We'll get to that episode later. Um, Because I do think that the book doesn't change, but you do. And certain words hit you differently. And certainly certain plots resonate with you more as you get older or make you nostalgic for the person you used to be when you met the story the first time. And that kind of leads me into the first book that I'm grateful for. And anyone who knows me probably knows this off the bat, but the first book that I'm thankful for is Lewis Carroll's Alice in Wonderland. Um, It is my very favorite book. Um, I have so many copies of this book, probably over 20 copies of antique versions um, versions from the 50s, 60s, illustrated versions, sh- tiny little pocket versions. Um, I am a, definitely a collector of this book and have read it aloud to both of my children, one of my children, more than once. And it is the thing that I know most of my friends and family connect with me. And so that makes me also love it all the more because I know that it's almost symbolic of who I am. And yes, I know it's problematic. I know Lewis Carroll and Alice Liddell's relationship would not, uh, is, was not kosher then and is not kosher now. But at the same time, I also feel like, you know what, um, the story stands on its own. And I think in this world right now, there are a lot of artists and writers whose behaviors are suspect. Um, And the art itself exists in this in-between space. But I embrace Alice in Wonderland and and I'm not willing to give it up quite yet. But the story itself is what I want to talk about today. And the nonsense, the poetry, the fantasy, 
the satire, the imagery, the on and onness of it all, that it is masquerading as a children's book, but in fact has all of these elements that can be read if you are wearing the right pair of glasses to read it. And I remember back in at the school I went to from uh, at boarding school, they taught one of the teachers taught Alice in Wonderland. Um, I did not have that teacher. I think it was Mr. Lowry for anybody who is out there um, who's listening and um, remembers. Please let me know. But um, so you got to see all these people carrying around pocket versions of Alice in Wonderland paperback copies. And, you know, I wasn't reading that. And I was so jealous um, of that class. But at the same time, I got I had Mr. James and I was reading Tender is the Night, which is also one of my very favorite books. So I not that you know, I I didn't lose out that much, but I didn't get into that class. And I remember speaking with my friend who was in it about Jabberwocky, the poem. And it was the first time I ever really understood that this nonsense poem could be read because Lewis Carroll kept the grammatical structure in place, even though the words were nonsense. And this was just such a powerful moment for me as a poet and really made me think about structure and grammar as these bones that you could hang words upon rather than relying on the words to open up the space for the reader. And I was so jealous that he got to talk about that in class the next day. And we I remember sat in front of his dorm. And we talked about that for a while, for about 20 minutes. It felt very intellectual. And um, it also made me realize that there's nothing I love more than talking about books with friends. And so there's a couple of other memories that are attached to this book for me that are personal. Um, the One of the first copies I ever received of it was from my grandmother. It was a children's illustrated version. It was hard copy. Um, the co- illustrations were all in color, these beautiful color plates, along with the traditional black and white version of the drawings that are in every copy of um, that has the traditional illustrations by John Tenniel. Um, and it is, to this day, one of my most precious possessions. It is signed um, by her and the in the inscription. And I remember my brother received a thousand and one Arabian Nights illustrated version. Um, and I don't know where that is, but knowing my brother, he probably still has it. Um, another Alice in Wonderland moment is um, in Seattle, there's a restaurant called the Walrus and the Carpenter, which I've eaten at, of course, and uh, highly recommend. But I also think it's part of our vernacular. Alice in Wonderland is part of who we are as a society and we've sort of lovingly accepted it into um, all these little moments uh, that exist out there like playing cards and Christmas ornaments and roses on trees and of course the beautiful Tim Burton movies which I do I do enjoy and I hope that you um, got to see because I think that they really really great even though I know Johnny Depp is also problematic as an an artist. But I also love the idea in those thumbnail moon, when it's just a bit bigger than the thumbnail, of seeing the Cheshire Cat grin in that moon when it's there. And it 
never fails to make me think of this quote in Alice in Wonderland, which is my favorite um, one where he says, it's no use going back to yesterday because I was a different person then. And it is something I hold close to my heart as someone who thinks about the past as a writer, you know, it's your job to notice and observe and you're kind of always borrowing from your past and whether it's, you know, notes that you've made in a certain situation or uh, ideas for books that you might have had, but you're always looking a little bit in the past. And when you do that, you realize how much you're changing all the time. And I think that that's what's so magical about Alice in Wonderland is she takes the potion and she's bigger and she no longer fits in the same spaces. And she drinks the potion and she's smaller and she can fit in those spaces easily. And I think we are always vacillating between the bigness of ourselves and the smallness of ourselves. And I think that's one of the most beautiful things that Alice in Wonderland as a book reminds us of. The second book that I am incredibly thankful for and find myself using almost as a tool every day to meditate, meditate upon my life as a writer and as a, an artist is um, Daily Rituals, Women at Work by Mason Curry. And it is a beautiful little small book. Um, it's the second in his series of Writers at Work. Um, where he profiles only female artists in this book of all genres, poets, painters, sculptors, performance artists, dancers. And through first person and primary sources, discovers how they felt about their work in these short little vignettes. And I've always been interested in how artists work and the story of the artist in their origin stories and I watch a ton of documentaries and I love biopics like Frida and Pollock and Theo and Vincent. And I find myself constantly thinking about them, listening to podcasts about writers' routines, um, looking for the magic formula that will help me through the week or through the month, whatever it is I'm trying to accomplish. One of my goals in life is to produce a coffee table book where I do nothing but take photographs of artists' hands and not their faces, not anything that they've written, but just their hands. Because I think it's so powerful to think about the body in that way, that through those hands, so much magic can come. And um, I love the idea of who wears rings and who takes care of their hands and whose are full of beautiful mountainous veins and whose are um, calloused because of playing guitars. And I just, I love the idea of the hand um, and also being the most complicated to draw um, makes the photograph even more special because you're almost capturing the magic before it happens. So my friends who are photographers out there, if you're interested in producing such a book with me, please let me know. Bob Green, I'm talking to you. Anyway, I um, wanted to talk about these vignettes that Curry offers up in this book about patterns and habits and routines, because no two are alike, but they are all kindred spirits to you. They are all working with resistance and reception constantly. and 
in this particular one, I'm going to read you a, a passage of by Catherine Porter or about Catherine Porter. She talks about the isolation um, that some artists need or some artists require in order to produce work. She's talking about the addicts that, you know, have come to be ubiquitous in terms of the female artists, especially um, there's studio space mentioned, motherhood mentioned, all of these things mentioned. And I find myself on a consistent basis, just opening this book to any page and seeing whose life is going to mirror mine for the moment. Is it going to be you know, Kate Chopin, is it going to be Grace Hardigan? There's so many people um, and their stories in this, in these short little bursts that can help you become more at peace with the process of creating, especially as a woman. In this particular book, it is 100% female artists. But in the original um, Daily Rituals, there were probably 90% male artists and, you know, 10% female. So he um, wrote this one as a follow-up. But in the Catherine Porter section, he writes, As much as she relished that solitary writing period, Porter never considered making it a permanent condition. Her writing came from life, and she was dismissive of writers who sought out long-term isolation. She says in 1961, Any such alienation from society is death. You may live in an attic, and you'll probably have fine company if you do. But first, you have to become a human being. And I think that's the idea of this book that I love so much, is that these artists are human beings, and that they are putting themselves out there in a way that we all can, that we all can come to understand ourselves as artists. We can all bring our creativity forth for connection to other people. Whether you share it on a large stage or not is up to you, but putting your most vulnerable, most authentic gifts out for the world to share, even if that world is your family and friends, is part of life. And the more you isolate yourself, the more you lose that connection. And that's something that I, as a natural introvert, have to remind myself constantly um, and that even a small thing like this podcast can help me be truer to myself because who doesn't like to talk about books um and the last book that i am thankful for and this is another book that i do find myself returning to and i guess all three are books i find myself returning to over again over and over again and that's why i'm so thankful that they exist and that they're on my bookshelves and i can touch them and look at them as often as i want to because I don't keep a static library. I'm always lending books out that I don't have an expectation of returning back to me. I trade them in at books, used bookstores or I donate them or I leave them at the library and our library has like a, a drop off for, for gifted books. Um, and of course, now my sons are, are reading um, some of my books off my bookshelf too, which I do want to do an episode on books to share with your teenager. But um, the last book I want to talk about is Galway Cannell's uh, book of poems, Mortal Acts, Mortal Words. Um, I love Galway Cannell, and I was very upset when he passed away a few years ago. And um, he, it is one of my favorite moments um, meeting an artist because I have never been so taken over by fear 
before. Um, and it felt a little probably like when young people meet, I don't know, Taylor Swift or something. I, I, I was so overwhelmed with emotion when I met him. Um, so it was in New York and I'd gone to see him read. I think it was at the 92nd Street Y. And, um, and of course had, um, my book for him to sign and I waited in line and I was very excited. And of course, you know, didn't think I would have a visceral reaction <laughs> to meeting him, but I absolutely did. And I froze and, um, wasn't really able to speak. And Dave had to, and him, my husband now had to, had to hand him my book and, and, uh, and he just was so kind and smiled and, and signed it, of course, lovingly. And, um, Dave told him, you know, he's my favorite of all time. And I just said, oh yes, of all time, I think is all I said. And I have always remembered that moment. And people have asked me about, have you guys ever met any famous people as a common party question? And I have kind of two stories. I have this one that I just told. And then I almost hit Jonathan Franzen, who wrote The Corrections with my car in New York City. But that is a, another story for another day. But um, meeting Golly Cannell is truly one of the greatest moments because it just reminded me the power of words can shift your body chemistry um, in an uncontrollable way. You are forever changed after reading certain books, and you are forever changed when you internalize poetry like Canals. Um, and it, it's so, the, his poems have been in my touchstones in my life for so many um, years, and I even taught his book of nightmares um, when I taught in Seattle years ago, and and I wonder these days if I could even teach that book again, um, because so many books have come under fire. And I'm trying to even remember if there would be a poem, but there's lots of poems about making love, about having babies, that I'm sure the language would be under fire uh, today. And I would, I would die on that hill. I would die on that hill to teach a book of nightmares again to high school students. But the poem I'm going to read today and the poem I'm going to leave you with today is a poem called Wait. And I think that so much of our time on earth is about watching our emotions move us in places and thinking that that place is permanent and he reminds us in this beautiful poem, poem um, that there's beauty in waiting and there's beauty in stillness and that we will find ourselves again before we know it. And so I leave you with this. And I'm very thankful for you, for all who are listening. And I hope you love reading and I hope you know the books that you're thankful for. And please let me know, write them in the comments. And I'll leave the three books that I've discussed today in the comments as well um, for you to check out and um, hopefully reread if you've already read them. But here's Wait by Galway Canel. Wait for now. Distrust everything if you have to. But trust the hours. Haven't they carried you everywhere up to now? 
Personal events will become interesting again. Hair will become interesting. Pain will become interesting. Buds that open out of season will become interesting. Secondhand gloves will become lovely again. Their memories are what give them the need for other hands. And the desolation of lovers is the same. That enormous emptiness, carved out of such tiny beings as we are, asks to be filled. The need for the new love is faithfulness to the old. Wait. Don't go too early. You're tired. But everyone's tired. But no one is tired enough. Only wait a little and listen. Music of hair, music of pain, music of looms weaving all our loves again. Be there to hear it. It will be the only time, most of all, to hear the flute of your whole existence, rehearsed by the sorrows, play itself into total exhaustion. Thanks for listening to The Literary Sipper. I hope you enjoyed this episode and learned something new. If you did, please subscribe and leave a rating and review if you're feeling especially generous. Until next time, keep reading, keep writing, and keep putting your voice in the world. It's waiting for you. 